Good morning. So, uh, there is, I don't think, uh, what's your name there walking away? Gary? I don't think Gary mentioned this. If he did, sorry. Uh, the Bennetts have a table outside. Well, not outside. In the foyer on the right uh, with literature and things about their ministry in Spain and uh, some pictures, I think. So, stop by there on your way out and share with them. Uh, it's happy birthday, Tom. Yay. Great. Great to have you here. Good to see you, Georgia, over there. Haven't seen Georgia in a while. I'm glad you're here. Uh, so when we sang those, those words, you can have all this world, but give me, did you mean them? Did you say, first of all, did you sing them? Maybe, oh, I'm not singing those. Uh, but if you sang them and meant them, then this message will go better for you. Okay? Uh, so true or false, the Christian life is a difficult life. Got some trues? Some trues? Any, any falses? No, don't, don't, don't say. True. It's true. Uh, I don't think the, the Bible candy coats it. I think it's true. However, this truth is not always has not always been, continues to not be understood by some followers of Jesus Christ, especially modern, western, North American followers. We've grown up, thank God, in many ways, in a time and a place that's been, uh, continues to be free from any sort of governmental persecution, mostly governmental interference, where in general, being a Christian has no, in our culture, society has no real major disadvantages. And so we tend to believe that as Christians, we're protected from the difficulties of this life. We take verses like uh, John 10.10. 10. Who knows what John 10.10 10 say, says? It's the abundant life. I came that they might have life and have it abundant. The thief comes to steal, destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We take verses like this. I mean, there are others that are meant, I believe, I think Scripture teaches, uh, to speak of our spiritual abundant life, the life that we find of satisfaction and joy in relationship with Jesus Christ, and we apply those to our finances, our family situations, our health, other things. Even us uh, evangelicals can believe that as Christians, we're to experience uh, the abundance of health and, and maybe even wealth. And when we inevitably don't, when life becomes difficult, we begin to question God. Didn't you promise me an abundant life? Well, I just got fired. Uh, I just lost a loved one. I just found out I was terminally ill. And there goes my abundant life. So your promises can't be trusted. And what we need to understand is that from a historical, a cultural perspective, we as Western Christians are living in a fairly unique time in history, a a fairly unique situation. Throughout human history, and even today in many countries in the world, if I were to say the Christian life is a difficult one, no one would disagree. There would be amen. Certainly, first century Christians wouldn't disagree. 
They not only face the standard problems that come with living in a fallen world, but they also face difficulties and persecution for being believers in Jesus Christ. And that takes us to 1 Peter, which we'll be looking at for the foreseeable future. In this letter, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who are experiencing persecution because of their faith. He was writing to people who knew by experience that the Christian life is a difficult life. And so Peter seeks to encourage and instruct those who are facing difficulty and persecution. And that's why, after much thought and prayer, I've decided to take us through this letter. First Peter has much in the way of teaching about who God is, and there are many applications for our lives, many blessings contained in these five chapters. But as an overarching purpose... For this series, I want us to understand that the Christian life is a difficult life. So that when we encounter difficulties because of our faith, or because we live in a sin-filled world, we'll know that these difficulties are uh, par for the course. They're normal. And more importantly, we'll know how to deal with them. Because Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, not only tells us that life is difficult, but he gives us insight into dealing with these difficulties, including persecution. Now, we North American Christians might not be used to facing persecution, but we all have or will face the difficulties of living in a fallen world. And it seems to me, I'm not a prophet I, I, but, I, but I have eyes that see and ears that hear and a brain that thinks. And so it seems to me that the direction of our country, our culture, the direction it's moving in, that we will at some point face actual persecution because of our faith. And Peter has help for us when we do. So with, that's my introduction to, to our series through First Peter. Now let's look at Peter's introduction to his letter. In verses 1 and 2, he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the knowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Three main things I want us to see in this introduction. First, Peter begins by identifying himself, uh, the author. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the same Simon Peter, sometimes called Cephas, uh, we read about in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Simon being his Hebrew name, Peter, Greek name. His brother's name was Andrew. He was that outspoken fisherman who Jesus called to be a, a fisher of men. Along with the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James and John, Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle of, of three out of the twelve. He was the one who, seeing Jesus walking on the water, wanted to join him, but ended up uh, sinking. He's the disciple with the brilliant answer to Jesus' question, who do they say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And based on Peter's profession of who Jesus is, Jesus bestowed upon him this great blessing. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Notice Peter doesn't get the credit 
for his brilliant insight into who Jesus is, God does, and yet Peter does get the reward. And I tell you, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, throughout church history, these verses have been interpreted in different ways. From making Peter uh, the first pope, uh, to saying this really doesn't have much to do with Peter at all. Jesus isn't talking about Peter personally, but about his statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that the church is not founded on Peter, but on Jesus, the rock. Now, now we don't have time to deal with this. It's not, it's not the purpose here, issues. But it, but it seems to me that even though I don't believe Peter or any man is given ultimate authority over the church, that belongs to Christ alone, still, Peter is involved to some degree. I will give you the keys means something. So suffice it to say that Peter was to have a major role in the founding, the building of Jesus' church. He was to be a leader in the church. However, just a few verses later, we see another familiar side of uh, Peter. Jesus had informed his disciples. I mean, this is just right after this in the book of Matthew. It doesn't give us the time frame, but it, it wasn't long after. Jesus had informed his disciples about his death and resurrection. It had went over their head, but Peter, uh, but the resurrection had went over their head. Let me say that. But Peter, the death didn't go over his head. And Matthew writes, and Peter took him, Jesus, aside. Can you imagine taking Jesus aside for one thing? And he began to rebuke him. Well, that's not smart. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. Can you say that? Far be it from you, Lord, doesn't go together. This shall never happen to you. I mean, you can see, I'm, uh, let me not get carried away. You can see Peter's heart. He's, he's like, I don't want you to die, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're not setting your mind on the things that God is going to do through me. You're setting your mind on your own personal desire not to lose me. So in a very short time, Peter goes from being held up as the, the leader of the church to being called Satan by Jesus. His obedience his understanding of things, the things of God, was certainly not always spot on, right? We saw that last week as well, remember? We looked at Peter's great fall as he boasted about his loyalty and love for Christ. But then when push came to shove, Peter denied his Lord uh, three times. But then we looked at how Jesus restored Peter to ministry, giving him the opportunity to profess his love for Christ three times, sort of uh, doing away with those denials, put those behind you, and then commanding Peter three times to be uh, a shepherd over the flock of God, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. So even though Peter had his faults, Jesus continued to call him to ministry, and that's a sermon in itself, by the way. You know, we as the children of God, we continue to have our faults, but Jesus continues to call us uh, to his work, to his ministry. And by God's grace, 
And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter was transformed. He became a leader. Not perfect. He became an apostle. He is an apostle in the early church. Uh, read about that transformation and, and Peter's beginning of leadership in Acts chapter 2. That's, we're going to refer to Acts chapter 2 a couple times today. And so that's, that's our homework. Read Acts 2. It'll, it'll be helpful in uh, providing the foundation for 1 Peter even. So Peter's an apostle. He introduces himself. Simon Peter, uh, apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle means uh, messenger or a representative, an ambassador even. And, and on, in one sense, we are all to be apostles, messengers, representatives of Jesus Christ. But in the early church, there were those who Christ had specifically chosen as his disciples, his apostles, to become the, the foundation, if you will, of his church that, that begins really as Jesus ascends, as he sends the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit empowers this early church, that's the foundation that, that we're standing on now. And Peter's considered to, to not only be an apostle, but the leader of the apostles. And as such, he was charged by Jesus with the shepherding of the flock. And this letter, 1 Peter, is, is a great testimony to his shepherd's heart. And we'll see that as we move through it. So, so that's the author the Apostle Peter. Now we turn to uh, the audience. After identifying himself as the author, Peter writes, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I have a map here that shows the location of these areas. The provinces, can you see the red? So those are the the red ones there are the ones mentioned in Peter's letter. So that's where he's writing to. That's where the letter's going to be sent forth. At the end of the book, it gives the name of the guy, Sentia. I think he's going to carry it through to these, these provinces. And these are all Roman provinces in Asia Minor, located north of the Taurus Mountains. You can see the mountain there. There must have been something about the mountain. So it was going to the to the northern part of Asia Minor. Today, this area is part of the nation of Turkey. These provinces were ethnically and at times linguistically very diverse, yet they all had been impacted by the Greek and the Roman cultures. And when Peter wrote, they were all under Roman control. Now, some have thought that because, so that's the sort of the location it's going, and then there are those that have thought that because of the phrase exiles of the diaspora, that's how he addresses them, that Peter was specifically writing to uh, Jewish Christians. Because when the kingdom of Israel, think back, your Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel in the north and then later the kingdom of Judah in the south were defeated by Assyria and Babylon respectively, Many of the Jews in the land either fled or were taken captive. For example, we read about Daniel and his three pals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken by the Babylonians and served in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. The people of Israel and Judah uh, dispersed. They became exiles in foreign lands. They were taken off their land. 
which is known as the diaspora or the dispersion. So some think Peter was writing to Jews who had been dispersed throughout this part of the Roman Empire. However, because of the content of the letter, most scholars are convinced that the audience of 1 Peter are mainly uh, Gentiles. For example, chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, we read, As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And in the same, uh, same way, verse 18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The references here to your former ignorance and the feudal ways of your forefathers suggests a, a pagan past that would not fit with its Jewish readers. Also, and maybe even more clear, chapter 4 we read, For the time that is past suffices for the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles, and, and in this context, the Gentiles is just referring to non-believers. It's sort of synonymous with non-believers. Uh, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they, are, they the Gentiles, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. This fits with uh, a Gentile audience, because Gentiles, non-Christian Gentiles, would not be surprised if Jews, Christian or not, did not join them in their debauchery. That was normal. The Jews did not join in. They were separate from the Gentile society. Now, that's not to say that there were not Jewish Christians in these churches. In, in fact, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 9, again, your homework, Acts chapter 2, uh, there were Jews from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So at least we know that the, these Jews heard the gospel from Peter, by the way, and quite possibly took it back to their provinces. But the evidence suggests that Peter is writing primarily to Gentile Christians. And you might wonder why this is important. It's important because when Peter calls his audience exiles of the dispersion, he's probably speaking figuratively. As the Jews were exiles in a, in a foreign land, so too are Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, exiles in this world. So with that as a backdrop, let's specifically examine the three ways Peter identifies his audience. This, as we'll see, is the identity of who they are. This is who they are, their identity. They are elect. These are all nouns in the Greek. They are exiles, and they are of the dispersion. These three nouns will be very important throughout our study of 1 Peter. Because as we'll see, they describe the church. They describe Christians in his time as well as our time. I want us to see that our identity is elect exiles of the dispersion. That's who we are. So let's look at these three nouns that identify Peter's audience, beginning with the elect. The, the, the Greek word translated elect is eklektos. And it simply means uh, chosen, to choose. Cho it's a noun, chosen, the, the chosen one. 
and throughout the Bible, being chosen is synonymous with, being, uh, with belonging to God, being God's people, uh, or being God's person. The chosen are those God loves, those who are precious to Him. We see this in the Old Testament with regards to Israel's identity. In the book of uh, Deuteronomy, God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, uh, God chose Israel, the Jewish people. And the psalmist writes, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. And through the prophet Isaiah, God says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Israel was clearly chosen by God. They were his beloved people. And we, when we get to the New Testament, that same language of being chosen by God is applied to the identity of Christians. Just a few examples. Speaking, uh, speak, first, speaking of the last days, Jesus said, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And to the Christians in Colossae, Paul writes, Put on them as God's chosen ones, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And in and in and and in the next chapter of First Peter we read. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. I hope it's clear that, that God's word teaches it is God who chooses those who will be his people. It's based on God's love that we're chosen and, and declared precious. And it's God who blesses and strengthens and helps and upholds and justifies and gathers those He chooses. Do you see the comfort in your identity of being chosen, of being the elect of God? Peter begins his letter by calling his audience elect. This means he he, he means to encourage them, to encourage the church. It reminds the people of God of His great love for them. It reminds them that they are part of the family of God. It reminds them that they are precious recipients of all of God's blessings. How unfortunate uh, that this biblical word, elect, chosen, has become something that uh, divides the church. Instead of being a word that brings great comfort and joy, it's become associated with a particular theological set of beliefs. If you talk about God's sovereign election or God's choosing uh, being the elect of God, you must be one of those Calvinists. Dina said it. 
But whether you're a Calvinist or not, whether maybe you're sitting there going, what the heck are you talking about? Whether you even know what a Calvinist is, don't be robbed of your identity. Don't be robbed of the joy of being chosen by God. Peter intended to assure his suffering audience of their identity as God's elect. Wouldn't that be important to know you're undergoing persecution? They're hunting you down. They're chasing you down. They're putting you and others in prison. Wouldn't it be important to know that God chose you? That's what Peter is trying to get across. He wanted them to understand God's steadfast love for them. And I hope, I pray, that knowing that you are elect, you are chosen by God, assures you even in times of difficulty, knowing that God has chosen you and that God loves you with an everlasting love. I would end this little section by saying, glorify God that your identity, who you are, is God's elect, that you've been chosen by God. Now let's look at the other two words together, the exiles of the dispersion. As I mentioned, uh, this phrase these two words have a, a clear connection to Israel, right? Israel as a nation was elect. They were chosen by God. Unfortunately, they began, the, the majority began, I would say, to take God's grace for granted. As special objects of His love, they, they believed they would always know His goodness. And over time, they begin to feel that they were entitled to the, the good life, even when their love for God fell off. Presumptuous sin began, uh, became the unfortunate companion of God's elect. And as a result, during the days of the kings, Israel and then Judah were carried off by God's plan into exile. They were dispersed by God. So by itself... Just so you know, being an exile of the dispersion is not necessarily a good thing. For Israel, being an exile of the dispersion uh, came upon them because of their sin, because of their unwillingness to follow God, because of their desire to follow after other gods. However, here in 1 Peter, the phrase exiles of the dispersion is for the first time joined with that word elect, the elect exiles of the dispersion which may seem strange. The audience uh, are those who are chosen, loved by God, but, but they are ex exiles of the dispersion. And being an exile of the dispersion in the past with regards to Israel had to do with their turning away from God. And what that means, and what we see as the letter progresses, is that these are exiles of a different sort. Their identity as exiles has nothing to do with ancient Israel's sin or their own. Their exile is not a result, their being exiles is not a result of their disobedience to God. In fact, all the evidence in this letter demonstrates that they were living faithful and fruitful lives, that they were living in obedience to God. Even in the next verse, uh, verse 2, which we'll get to shortly, Peter speaks of their sanctification and obedience. So as we've seen, Peter is writing to a, a very broad group of people, any, uh, all Christians, both Jew and Gentile, who live in Asia Minor and, and beyond. 
as all of uh, the uh, Scripture is. It, it tends to have a, a, a specific audience, but then by the power of the Spirit, it, it applies to us today as well. Some in the past may have been uh, of these people, some they, they may have been actual exiles. They may have been forced from their land for one reason or another, have to flood their land. And in that sense, they were physical exiles. But the majority of people are probably living in the same place they were born, in the same place their families had been brought up. So the fact that Peter addresses them as exiles of the dispersion is extremely important for us to understand because it means that for Peter... And the Holy Spirit that inspired him, any follower of Jesus Christ, is an exile of the dispersion. As Pastor Kent Hughes says in his commentary on this verse, the phrase, the phrases, exiles of the dispersion, depicts the normal state of any follower of Jesus, so long as he or she remains in this world. And what that means for us is that we are Peter's audience. Yes, we are elect. But at the same time, our identity includes being uh, exiles. In Peter's day and in our day, a Christian includes not, not only coming into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but it also includes a break with the world. It includes moving from being part of the world to being outside of everything the world stands for. It includes being an exile of the dispersion. C.S. Lewis stated the normal identity of the Christian as elect exiles this way. He said, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all of the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. There's this place that we we need to go to. If you read C.S. Lewis, he he talks about the the further in and the higher up, the, the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia. Come on, the further in, and, and the further in you go, the farther up you go, the greater it is. It's, everything else uh, is, is shadows. Take the world, give me Jesus. So our identity is elect exiles of the dispersion. That is who we are. As elect, we've been chosen by God. We are His beloved. We're destined for a world without sorrows, without fear, without pain. But as exiles, we're not there yet. We suffer the pain and sorrow of living in a world that is broken, a world that does not conform to the ways, ways of God, but instead opposes Him at every turn. We're in a real sense living behind enemy lines, as Paul put it so well to the church in Philippi. But our citizenship is in heaven, and for it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The city is This state, this country is not our ultimate home. And we long for something greater. We long for God to set all things right. But for now, we live as exiles. And what we'll see as we continue through Peter's letter is that being an exile includes some suffering. And the thing I want us to grab hold of even now The thing that we Americans struggle with, I certainly do, 
is that being in exile in this world and experiencing the suffering that goes along with it is part of our identity. It's normal. It's to be expected. Uh, do you remember two weeks ago, and I, I actually referred to it a minute ago as well, uh, when we talked about the resurrection? One of the strange things that I pointed out was that even though Jesus had spoken of his death and resurrection, he usually put them together. He didn't want the disciples to be too bummed out. Yes, I'm going to die, but I'm coming back. I'm going to rise from the dead. So he did that on a number of occasions, but when he, uh, when, he, when he died, none of the disciples were looking for his resurrection. They didn't get it. And I think, I think we're much, in, in much the same way when it comes to suffering because of, uh, of being a Christian's we're, we're, we're similar to the disciples. We aren't looking for it. We don't get it. Even though Jesus and others have warned us about it. When it comes, we're surprised. For example, Jesus' warning, Gospel of John. Jesus said, if you were of this world, if you were of this world, if you were not exiles, let me use some of uh, Peter's language, the world would love you as its own. Look, if the world loves you, then you have a problem. Because you're, you're of the world. But because you are not of this world, your identity is that of exiles. But I chose, I elected you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Oh, that doesn't seem very good, right? It's not, and it's not a great leap to realize that if the, uh, if the world ha- hating you is normal, which is how Jesus presents it, it's just part of being a follower of Christ, the world hated him, they will hate you, then suffering in the world will be normal as well. So just to summarize, some... Maybe many Christians today are under the false belief that as a believer, God should, even ought to, even is obligated to, protect them from suffering. That they should only experience the joys of being God's elect. But with Peter's description of his audience, with three simple words in the opening of this letter, uh, he's corrected that way of thinking. Both then and now, Christians, we are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And in his letter, Peter will make it very clear that this involves suffering. So in verse 1, we've introduced the author and the audience. Now in verse 2, the author, Peter, goes on to describe how the audience got their identity. How they became the elect exiles of the dispersion. And the answer focuses on uh, the architect. I think we can cover this. You guys okay? Okay. And by architect, I mean there's someone behind, uh, uh, someone who's planned and designed the fact that Christians are elect exiles of the dispersion. And Peter tells us who that someone is. So who is this architect? Anybody got any guesses? Uh, it's pretty clear. Okay, sorry. I just used the word architect for a couple reasons. One, I always wanted to be an architect. 
well, I didn't always. I first wanted, that's what, when I graduated from high school, I thought I was going to be an architect. So I got it in there. And it starts with an A. And it fits. It really does. Uh, but let's read verse 2. Oh, b- verse, verse 1, part of it, and then skip to verse 2 without the, the names there. So it becomes more clear. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of His blood. So the architect is clearly the triune God. God the Father, Spirit, and Son. God is the one who's designed our identity as elect exiles. He's the one responsible for who you are. And according to each person... Excuse me, corresponding to each person of the Trinity, Peter gives three dimensions of God's design. First, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Christians are elect exiles according to, in accordance with, based on the foreknowledge of God the Father. That word foreknowledge is the Greek uh, prognosis, which literally means uh, to know beforehand. It's not a diagnosis. It's a prognosis. Pro, before, know. To know beforehand. Now some see this foreknowledge of God as mainly his ability to know what will happen in the future, which he does, which he has. I mean, I don't, you know, does God have a future? Is he outside of time? Anyway, we're not going to answer that question. We'll just, we'll, we'll look at it from our perspective. So God knows the future. And he acts based on what he sees. So they say he foreknows, he sees in advance who will choose him, who will respond in faith to the gospel, and he chooses them. Therefore, his choosing is based on our choosing. Our free will is therefore not violated by his choice. However, it seems to me and others that there's more to God's foreknowledge than mere knowing beforehand. That God's foreknowledge speaks of His sovereign, loving, effective choice. It speaks to His purposes, His plans, His uh, will being done. I think we see this in the only other place uh, this word prognosis is used in the New Testament. This is uh, the noun, prognosis. The, The verb is to foreknow, which we'll look at in a second, is everywhere. But there's one other place where the noun is used. It's in, coincidentally, Acts chapter 2. In his first sermon, Peter, speaking of Jesus' crucifixion, says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. I think Peter's point here is more than God looking to the future and seeing, okay, if I send Jesus, what's going to happen? Okay, they're going to crucify him, so let me make a plan that includes that. It seems that he's speaking of God's sovereign, loving, effective choice and purpose in sending his son to die in our, in our place. We see this also just in, later in this chapter, 1 Peter 1.20, where Peter uses the corresponding verb, foreknow, Greek prognosko, prognosko. Speaking of Jesus, Peter writes, For he was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Jesus was foreknown. The NIV translates it, he was chosen before the creation of the world. So in some ways it's synonymous with being chosen. God foreknow, foreknew. He chose in advance, uh, sovereignly chose Christ before the foundations of the world to be the Savior of the world. 
And in the same way God chooses, He foreknows those who will be His elect exiles. Why? Well, we did this a lot when we were in Romans. We talked about it. Bottom line, because He's the loving God. Why did He choose me and not someone else? I cannot answer that question. There's some mystery. Why was I elect and others weren't? I don't know. Is that okay? All right. So in summary, but it is because of God's love, not because of something in me or you. So in summary, the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God, includes not only, not merely, God knowing ahead of time, but rather God's sovereign choice to enter into relationship with those he foreknows, those he knows beforehand. So, that's the Father. Peter then continues with the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Christians are elect exiles of the dispersion in the sanctification of the Spirit. Note the the close connection here between the Father's election and the Spirit's work of sanctification. We see this also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul writes, But we ought always to thank God for, for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We are chosen, we are elect, because of God's love. And as a demonstration of God's electing love, we're saved through the sanctifying work of of the Spirit. This refers uh, first to our conversion. When we who are chosen by God respond in faith to, G- in faith to Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit, and it is the Spirit who sanctifies us, uh, declares us holy, uh, sets us apart from this world. That's what sanctification means, to be set apart It really means to be exiles from the world. And as those who are set apart as exiles, the Spirit then continues to work in our lives to convict and transform. We are becoming more sanctified, more set apart, uh, more exiles, if you will, as time goes on, as the Spirit works in, in us. So summary, as the elect of God, by the power of the Spirit, we are sanctified, set apart as exiles which means we are, we are now holy and righteous in our standing before God, and we are growing in actual holiness in our lives. So we've seen the work of the Father in choosing and electing, and, with, and the work of the Spirit in sanctifying or exiling us. Peter then concludes with Jesus Christ, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Christians are elect exiles of the dispersion for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. This too describes our salvation. That word obedience does not just mean an outward act of obeying a set of commands. It includes an internal submission of yourself. And this is what faith involves. I trust in Jesus Christ... I have faith in Jesus Christ, therefore I fully submit myself to Him. I come under Him, His authority. Now, as I hope we all know, 
this faith, this obedience, does not earn our salvation. If that were the case, then the second part would not be necessary. Uh, Peter could have stopped right there. We are elect exiles of the dispersion for obedience, submission through faith. That's, that's what we do uh, to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Sprinkling of the blood was part of the Old Testament ritual service. In that case, the Old Testament case, it was the blood of sacrificial animals. This takes us back to the book of Exodus where Moses instituted God's covenant with Israel. Under Moses' direction, they built altars and they made, they made lots of sacrifices. There was lots and lots of blood flowing. They put blood on the altars and they read the book of the covenant aloud. The law of God. And the people vowed to obey. Yes, we will obey this. Then in chapter 24, verse 8, a, a kind of strange thing happens. We read, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Here's the blood. This is the blood uh, symbolizing this covenant. Now, just as the old covenant was inaugurated with the shedding and the sprinkling of blood, Peter sees believers sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And this refers clearly to Christ's sacrificial atoning sacrifice, sacrificial death on the cross. This is what enables us to be elect exiles. Without Christ's sacrifices, our sins could not be forgiven. We could not be chosen, if you will. But because of Christ's blood, our sins are washed away. And we can enter into a, a, a loving relationship with God. We enter a new covenant. The old covenant has passed. The new covenant has come. We celebrate this every month when we take communion. Just days before his crucifixion, as Jesus uh, ate with his disciples... He says in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, And likewise, the cup, after they had uh, eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. By the blood of Christ, we enter into a new covenant. We become, our identity becomes these elect exiles of the dispersion. So do you see that according to Peter, our identity who we are as elect exiles is because of the wonderful, mysterious work of God, His plan and His purpose. It's no accident that three nouns, that, that the three nouns Peter used to identify his readers in verse 1, elect exiles and of the dispersion, are followed in verse 2 by three descriptive phrases explaining how this can be. And it's no accident that Peter involves all three persons of the Godhead, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. In the strongest way possible, Peter has told us the Lord God, the creator of heavens and the, heavens and the earth, is behind it all. He's the architect of your identity as elect exiles. The Trinity has planned for us to be elect exiles of the dispersion. So take heart. 
be encouraged. Christians are those who are chosen by God the Father, set apart to live in this world as exiles by the Holy Spirit, all made possible by faith in Jesus Christ who shed His precious blood for us. So as we study this letter, I pray Peter's final words of introduction for each and every one of us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. As we, as we begin to embrace our identity as elect exiles of the dispersion, as we, as we come to see the beauty of being chosen by God, as we trust the Spirit's sanctifying power to be exiles in this world of suffering, and as we live in obedience to Jesus Christ who shed His blood for our sins, may the grace and peace of God be multiplied to all of us. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for, for your word, for the encouragement found therein, Father, that you've called us, you've chosen us, that you've loved us, that we're precious in your sight. But you've called us at this time, at this short time, no matter how long we live, it's a short time compared to eternity. For this short time, you've called us to be exiles in this world. Lord, help us to live as your representatives in a world that's, that's uh, continually moving away from you. Give us strength and power. Lord, and thank you for this encouragement. Help us to see uh, that it's normal. Help us not to be surprised when difficulty comes. Help us not to be surprised when uh, maybe even persecution begins, Father. Lord, be with us. Strengthen us. Empower us to live as uh, elect exiles for your purposes and plans. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you're dismissed. Don't forget to visit with the Bennetts and at their sweet table out in the back and, and others as well. Have a great day.